This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you again this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week I'll start reading from the Times of Israel. First, from the Times of Israel, State Department annexation should be part of Israeli-Palestinian peace talks. After Jordan's king warns against Israel extending sovereignty in West Bank, spokesperson Morgan Ortegas cites important of bringing all parties to the table for negotiations by Rafael Aron. Israeli deliberations about annexing parts of the West Bank should be part of discussions between Israel and the Palestinians on the Trump administration's peace plan, the U.S. State Department's chief spokesperson said Friday. The comments by Morgan Ortegas made during a phone briefing with Israeli reporters came after U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo made a lightning trip to Jerusalem Wednesday for talks with Israeli leaders on a number of issues. Pompeo did not specifically address questions during the trip about whether the U.S. would support Israel unilaterally advancing annexation after July 1st, as the coalition agreement between Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Blue and White Chairman Benny Gantz allows the new government to do, but said Jerusalem has the right and the obligation to decide if and when it wants to annex. He, Pompeo, said that annexation is up to Israel, Ortega said, stressing that annexation was certainly by no means the reason for Pompeo's trip. We think these discussions should be a part of the peace process, part of President Trump's vision for peace, so it should be part of discussions between the Israelis and the Palestinians. I don't really have much more to say on it than that. Ask directly whether Israel still has a green light for unilateral annexation, especially since the Palestinians are proving unwilling to consider the Trump peace plan, or whether Israel should put annexation on hold, Ortegas did not give a direct yes or no answer. She said, rather, that the U.S. administration has put out a comprehensive peace plan. We're going to continue to push for this vision for peace that the president has. We have certainly by no means given up hope. In fact, it will continue to be a major part of our foreign policy to press for the Palestinians to come to the table as part of this peace plan, as a part of this process. She added, there is a mapping committee that is led by Ambassador Friedman, and so I don't have anything new to announce today other than just to reiterate the fact that all of these discussions related to mapping and annexation we firmly believe should be a part of discussions between the Israelis and Palestinians working toward President Trump's vision for peace. The Palestinians have been boycotting the administration since U.S. President Donald Trump's decision to recognize Israel, uh, to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital and move the U.S. Embassy there and have rejected the peace plan out of hand. Key tenets of the proposal, namely Israel's proposed extension of sovereignty over parts of the West Bank, have also been opposed internationally, with European Union foreign ministers meeting Friday to discuss responses if the Israeli government goes through with the move. Ortegas was asked how the U.S. would respond if the EU sanctioned Israel over annexation in the West Bank. We will continue to remain a steadfast friend and ally of the State of Israel. We have proven in this administration we will do that, she said. 
pointing to the Jerusalem embassy move and Trump's recognition of the Golan Heights as part of Israel as examples of U.S. support. She was also asked to address Jordanian King Abdullah II's warning that annexation could lead to a massive conflict between Israel and his country. The United States has a close relationship with the state of Jordan. We know that Jordan plays a special role in the Middle East, especially with their relationship with Israel. Ortega said, What we want for both Israel and Jordan is the relationship that is not only strong on the security level, but that's also strong at the diplomatic level and the economic level. We certainly understand that the king has expressed his concerns today, and again, that's why we think it's important to turn back to President Trump's vision for peace and to bring all parties to the table to work toward this peace plan, she added. During the briefing, Ortegas also addressed U.S. concerns about Chinese investment. Whether we're in Israel, whether we're in the United Kingdom or India or Thailand or anywhere in the world, our message is very simple about the risk of Chinese investment, she added, saying Israel should look more closely at creating a body to scrutinize foreign investment in the country. While declining to comment on reported U.S. concerns about a Chinese-linked firm's bid to build a desalination plant in Israel, Ortegas warned many companies from China involved in technology and infrastructure projects were beholden by law to the ruling Communist Party of China. That is not a risk that the American people or the Israeli people should tolerate, she said. While in Israel, Pompeo appeared to take a swipe at China, which the U.S. is locked in a trade war with, and has blamed for the coronavirus pandemic. You are a great partner. You share information, unlike some other countries that try to obfuscate and hide that information, Pompeo told Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. We'll talk about that country, too. China's ambassador to Israel responded Friday, calling U.S. concerns about Chinese investment in the country absurd and saying Beijing hoped its Jewish friends will not only succeed in defeating the virus, but also the political virus. And next from the Times of Israel, officials said to warn Palestinian authorities' economic woes amid pandemic could fuel violence. Security sources say upheaval from contraction and growth could be exacerbated by potential Israeli annexation leading to West Bank unrest by Times of Israel staff. Israeli security officials have warned that the Palestinian Authority's economic troubles amid the coronavirus pandemic could lead to a violent uprising in the West Bank that destabilizes Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas's rule, according to a newspaper report Friday. The security officials also cited Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's vow to move forward with annexation in parts of the West Bank as a factor that could further fuel potential violence against both Israel and the PA, the Haaretz Daily reported. The warnings were made in recent meetings with political leaders, during which the officials cited intelligence and worrying economic data from the Palestinian Central Bureau of Statistics, such as an estimated 13.5% contraction of the economy this year, the report said. In addition to the predicated virus-induced drop in growth, the sharp decline in the number of Palestinians working in Israel and West Bank settlements, both legally and illegally since the start of the pandemic, was seen as potentially causing further significant damage to the PA's economy. 
The PA's barring of Israeli citizens from entering areas under its control, where many Arab Israelis go to shop, as well as the collapse of the tourism industry and the difficulty of enlisting additional financial support from European and Arab donor states that are also suffering economically because of the virus, were cited in the report as further contributing to the PA's growing financial problems. Intelligence officials quoted by the newspaper noted protests in the West Bank in recent years have been mainly over economic issues and that there have not been major outbreaks of violence over hunger strikes by Palestinian security prisoners or in response to the moving of the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem as there were in the Hamas-ruled Gaza Strip. With some 1.4 Palestinian children out of school in the West Bank, 1.4 million Palestinian children out of school in the West Bank and Gaza because of the virus, the security officials were said to be concerned they could become involved in violence if it were to break out. The reported concerns came as Israel earlier this week agreed to set aside 800 million shekels, that's $228 million, for potential loans to the Palestinian Authority to help offset the expected economic losses caused by the coronavirus. A cumulative maximum of 800 million shekels has been set for the entire period. After the pandemic's economic effects end and the PA recovers its revenue stream, Israel will deduct the fronted funds from future tax transfers. Palestinians shop while wearing protective masks amid the ongoing coronavirus. Under interim peace agreements, Israel collects taxes on behalf of the Palestinian Authority on imports and exports and transfers the funds to the Palestinians each month. These transfers cover a sizable chunk of the Palestinian government's budget. Over the last two years, Israel has deducted funds from the tax revenues it collects per the amount that the PA says to Palesti- pays to Palestinians' security prisoners and their families. Palestinian Authority Minister Mohammed Shtaya said during a Monday cabinet meeting that the total sum of last year's withheld funds amounted to 700 million shekels, $200 million. At one point last year, the PA rejected the entirety of the tax transfers and protest of the Knesset legislation requiring this deduction, but it relented months later upon facing further economic toil. Late last week, several banks in the West Bank blocked access to accounts of Palestinians convicted of security-related offenses days before an Israeli military decree entered into effect imposing sanctions on banks that financially rewarded terrorism. The freeze led to anger on the Palestinian streets, with shots fired at a bank in the northern West Bank city of Jenin, a Molotov cocktail hurled at another branch in Jericho, and protests held outside one in Ramallah. The move prompted the PA to form a committee to fight the Israeli measure, and Shtayes said last week that an agreement had been reached with banks to unfreeze the accounts. Israel has long tried to clamp down on the hundreds of millions of dollars in stipends that are paid out to Palestinians convicted of security offenses or the families of slain attackers, which it says encourages terror. Ramallah has vowed to continue the payments, describing them as a form of social welfare and compensation for what it claims is an unfair military justice system that often robs Palestinians of due process. And next from the Times of Israel, as possibility of West Bank annexation looms, Democrats mull how to sway Israel. 
while party is unified in opposition to Israel extending sovereignty to settlements and Jordan Valley, it's splintered over how harsh the response should be if Netanyahu goes ahead. By Eric, Tor- Eric Cortalesa, Washington. After Israel swears in its new government, it is all but certain to face more international controversy over Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's proposed unilateral annexation of parts of the West Bank. The move, if enacted, would amount to a major turning point in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, with Israel crossing what has long been considered a red line, not only by Palestinians, but also foreign heads of state, American policymakers, and Middle East peace negotiators, who argue that it would severely weaken the prospects for a two-state solution. The possibility has been especially agonizing for Democrats and liberal pro-Israel advocates who are united in their opposition to annexation but splintered over what the U.S. policy response should be if Israel implements Netanyahu's plan or some version of it and Democrats take back power in 2021. There's certainly some difference in terms of consequences, a veteran strategist for the party told the Times of Israel, The vast majority of Democrats don't share this view, but some think security assistance ought to be curtailed or reduced or redirected if Israel annexes parts of the West Bank, but that is a very small minority of Democrats. Two national security officials in the Obama administration, Rob Malley and Phil Gordon, penned an op-ed in Foreign Policy last month urging the Democrats' presumptive presidential nominee, Joe Biden, to make clear that if Israel moved forward with annexation, portions of American aid would be at risk. Even as the United States continues to support Israel's security, a President Biden could explore ways of deducting any money spent on the annexed territories from generous U.S. assistance, consistent with the long-standing U.S. policy of deducting spending on Israeli settlements in the West Bank from U.S. loan guarantees, they wrote. If such a policy were made clear, any decision by Israel's government to nonetheless go forward with annexation would be a side that it felt secure enough to forego a portion of U.S. assistance. Other Democrats, however, have said that USA to Israel shouldn't be touched and that there would be other levers to sway Jerusalem, including by not shielding it from censure over the matter at international forums such as the United Nations. Responding to Democrat rumblings of discontent, The American-Israel Public Affairs Committee released a statement this week that sought to convince lawmakers not to push for any changes to U.S.-Israel policy as a reaction to annexation. Some have proposed reducing our ties with Israel because they object to the potential decision by Israel's leaders to extend Israeli sovereignty to parts of the West Bank. The statement said, doing anything to weaken this vital relationship would be a mistake. Last month, Netanyahu struck a complex power-sharing deal with Blue and White Party leader Benny Gantz. Under the arrangement, the Prime Minister can bring up his proposal to annex some 30% of the West Bank, all the settlements, and the Jordan Valley from July 1, when he will need approval from either the Cabinet or the Knesset. Until then, the government's focus is supposed to be exclusively on responding to the COVID-19 pandemic, But that still leaves plenty of time for the government to annex disputed West Bank territory before November's U.S. election. While the move would be in accordance with the Middle East plan U.S. President Donald Trump unveiled in January, which endorsed extending Israeli sovereignty over roughly 30% of the West Bank, it would fuel tensions with the Democratic Party, 
former Democratic Party officials, and progressive Israeli activists say. I think there is a consensus among Democrats that unilateral annexation is a bad idea and they oppose it, Obama administration envoy to Israel Dan Shapiro told the Times of Israel. Israel, if it decides to undertake this, would be doing it with the knowledge that one entire political party, including its closest friends and strongest supporters in that party, view this as a very negative development and very harmful to the U.S.-Israel relationship. So that would be unfortunate. Democrats have been on record making that point for months now. In December, the House passed a resolution opposing annexation down party lines with overwhelming support from Democrats, including staunch supporters of Israel like New York Representative Elliot Engel, Florida Representative Nita Lowey, and Illinois Representative Brad Schneider. The Trump administration, however, has sent other signals. Last month, the State Department said it was ready to recognize Israel's annexation of parts of the West Bank, and Secretary Mike Pompeo, on a flying visit to Israel Wednesday, said Jerusalem has the right and obligation to decide what and when to annex. The debate over how Democrats should respond to the looming Israeli decision heated up on Capitol Hill after three Democratic senators crafted a letter to Netanyahu this week, saying the action would erode strong support among the American people for the special relationship. The letter, orchestrated by Maryland Senator Chris Van Hollen, Virginia Senator Tim Kaine, and Connecticut Senator, Senator Chris Murphy, is supported by the liberal Mideast advocacy group J Street, but opposed by the Democratic Majority for Israel, which sent an email to its followers this week asking them to urge their senators not to sign it. Our reading of the letter was that it would be interpreted as a call to condition U.S. security aid, said Mark Melvin, president of the pro-Israel Democratic group. The author suggested that's not the case, that that's not what they believe, but we read it in that way and think that people ought not to sign it until it's changed to clearly reflect what the authors report to be its intent. It's one thing to strongly object to annexation. It's another thing to threaten to mutual, a mutually beneficial relationship, Melman told the Times of Israel. That's not an important line I think members of Congress ought to cross. The letter itself does not mention USA to Israel. J Street President Jeremy Ben-Ami said his organization does not support cutting aid over annexation, but stressed a number of other potential responses, including implementing stricter restrictions and reporting requirements to ensure American taxpayer money does not go toward annexation and not protecting Israel at the UN. It's not a single yes or no question, Ben-Ami told the Times of Israel. Slashing aid is a very, very strong term and implies you're taking a very blunt instrument and just hacking away. I think the toolkit for American foreign policy is a lot more robust than a slasher. You've got many, many things that could be done. Far greater oversight and limitations on how money could be used would be certainly called for, and I think widely within the range of discussion, he added. Whether it's at the Security Council or in other venues, the U.S. might not provide blanket immunity and blanket support when it comes to issues related to this step. That is, a limited surgical approach, not a blanket step back from America's support for Israel, ben said, but the U.S. might not want to be in the position of defending and supporting actions that Israel has taken that clearly run counter to international law, America's interests, and Israel's own interests. 
During the 2020 Democratic Party primary campaign, several of the leading candidates floated the idea of slashing aid to Israel if it extended sovereignty to the West Bank settlements, including Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders and former South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg, signaling support for the idea among segments of the Democratic caucus. Other leading Democrats have in the past suggested the same approach. New York Congresswoman Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez said in April 2019 that cutting aid should be on the table following Netanyahu's previous election victory. He had vowed on the campaign trail to annex the West Bank, but was ultimately unable to form a coalition, forcing another round of elections. Biden himself has called the idea outrageous and said he wouldn't touch the aid, although he has spoken out multiple times against annexation, including at this year's APAC conference, telling the attendees that it would choke off any hope for peace. Shapiro, who worked alongside Biden in the Obama administration, also said there were other levers to influence Israel's decisions beyond cutting aid. The vast majority of Democrats and security officials, he added, wouldn't support changes to U.S. assistance because of America's own belief from it through intelligence sharing and other forms of cooperation. The aid is not provided as altruism, he said. It is connected as a sense of obligation to help Israel with its security and survival, but it's very much seen by American policymakers and national security officials as in the U.S. interest. That was President Obama's view. Last week, more than 30 former foreign policy officials, many of whom worked in the Obama administration, urged the Democratic National Committee to include language in the 2020 party platform that would oppose Israel's planned annexation of West Bank territory and call for a greater commitment to Palestinian human rights. As Israel moves closer to July 1st, Democratic pro-Israel activists are expected to continue warning Israel that annexation would harm its relationship with one of the two major American political parties. It's really important for Democrats to stress their unified stance in opposition to annexation, said Susie Gelman, board chair of the Israel Policy Forum, a nonprofit that supports a two-state solution. Because of any form of annexation done unilaterally by Israel would erode the sense of shared democratic values between the U.S. and Israel and further strain positive feelings about Israel in the Democratic Party. And now we'll go over to the New York Jewish Week for some updates on the coronavirus situation by Steve Lipman. The conservative Masorti movement has adopted a teshuva or rabbinic responsum that would allow for the live streaming of services on Shabbat and festivals, particularly during the high holidays this fall. The teshuva was authored by Rabbi Josh Heller of Congregation B'nai Torah in Atlanta and a member of the Movement's Committee on Jewish Laws and Standards. It recognizes the traditional Shabbat restrictions on using electricity and technology, but notes that a streaming alternative would lessen the pressure on synagogues to open their buildings too early, allow individuals to engage in prayers that must be said in a quorum or minion, and aid those who may suffer from isolation while forced to stay at home. The ruling advises congregants to log on for Friday night services before Shabbat and leave the Zoom on. According to a news release, the guidance contains many caveats and honors 
the role of individual rabbis in deciding what is appropriate for their communities. We are dealing with unprecedented challenges in providing the Jewish people with opportunities for communal prayer, celebrating life cycle events, and staying connected to Jewish life, Rabbi Stuart Vogel, president of the Rabbinical Assembly, said. We believe in the ability of our rabbis to face these challenges and want to provide you with resources to be able to do so. Rabbi Rachel Ain of Sutton Place Synagogue is among the conservative rabbis who have decided to allow worship services online on Shabbat and Holy Days. Convening our community during these moments at the moment when they occur has not only maintained our connections but has provided our community members with the comfort that communal Judaism doesn't pause even if New York is on pause, she wrote in a letter to congregants. Two weeks after announcing the cancellation of its summer programs in the United States and Israel, the Union for Reform Judaism has announced staff layoffs, JTA reports. Approximately 60 full-time employees, constituting 20% of the organization's staff, were laid off. The organization also implemented a temporary 3-16% to pay reduction, which began in April. Rabbi Rick Jacobs, president of the Union for Reform Judaism, took a 16% pay cut, as did the rest of the executive team. The impact of COVID-19 on all of our revenue streams has been crushing, and we anticipate it will take several years to recover, Rabbi Jacobs wrote in an email to staff, board members, and community leaders. Consequently, uh, consequently, our organization must get smaller. The layoffs will go into effect June 30th. Jacobs said the organization would also be furloughing additional employees. The furloughs in which employees are not paid and do not work but are expected to return will last from June 1st to August 31st. A majority of Israel's public says the coronavirus crisis has positively affected relations between Jews and Arabs, according to an April survey by the Israel Democracy Institute. As an example, Arab-Israeli doctors and nurses were honored in a recent video viewed more than two million times titled Partners in Fate, Partners in the Government. Of those surveyed, 56% of Jewish Israelis and 64% of Arab Israelis believe that relations have improved between Jews and Arabs in Israel during the coronavirus outbreak. However, when it comes to relations between Haredi Orthodox and non-Haredi Jews, the majority of those surveyed say the crisis has negatively affected it. 62% of the public says that relations between the Haredi community and the rest of Israelis were damaged during the pandemic, while only 17% of Haredim and 28% of the remaining Jewish Israelis say that relations have improved during this period. Attorney Lawrence Garbuz, the New Rochelle resident who became known as Patient Zero when he became one of the first people diagnosed with coronavirus in the U.S., shared his story for the first time this week on the Today Show. I'm thankful that I'm alive, Garbuz 50 said on the show Monday. It's been quite a journey. Israeli medical professionals are eligible for free flights on Qatar Airways, which are being given away as a way to thank frontline healthcare workers. The airline's CEO, Akbar Al-Baker, said that every single country in the world, including our neighboring countries, including the state of Israel, will be allocated numbers of tickets, depending on population and the size of the country, proportionately to the 100,000 tickets we are offering. 
Al-Bakar made the comment in an interview with CNN about the giveaway after journalist Richard Quest asked him about the eligibility of medical staff from countries to which Qatar is hostile, like Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Israel. There is no difference, no barrier in medical fields, Al-Bakar said. There are no boundaries. The announcement from Qatar comes on the heels of three other Gulf states seeking medical partnerships with Israel. Only about one in five people in this country favor allowing churches and other houses of worship to hold in-person services, even when the government has issued a stay-at-home order, according to the Public Religion Research Institute. More than three in four, 77%, oppose such a religious exemption. Across the country, lawsuits have been filed by religious organizations uh, who wish to hold services against local governments with social distancing measures in place. Vice President Mike Pence recently came out in support of opening up churches. We can do the social distancing, Pence said. People, can you know, sit a couple of seats apart. I'm sure churches and synagogues may consider adding additional services to be able to spread people apart. Just one in over, uh, just over one in four Republicans, 28% said they favor allowing in-person religious gatherings, compared to one in five Democrats, 20%. Condé Nast Traveler magazine has named Katz's Deli in Manhattan on its list of 11 best food gifts or quarantine care packages. Moisha House is offering an online color war as an alternative opportunity for people from around the world to come together in the spirit of Jewish summer camp. The Global Network of Communities for Young Jews says Expedition Nye will be the world's largest virtual color war. Almost 800 players from 191 cities in 28 countries have accepted the challenge, submitting more than 2,500 videos and images in response to weekly prompts posted online. Color War is a quintessential part of summer camp that builds community and brings people together in friendly competition, said Lisa Kligg, director of Moisha House's own Camp 999. Prizes and points are earned for submitting responses to virtual challenges. The challenges, Click said, were designed to be inclusive, accessible, and to generate creativity, an opportunity to engage in Jewish identity, and a sense of relief from the day-to-day -day experience of quarantine. The competition ends May 22nd. A doctoral student at Israel's Ben-Gurion University has developed a face mask that allows deaf people to see the lips of those who are wearing it, according to Hamodia. Caroline Tannenbaum-Baruchi, whose parents are both deaf, has teamed up with a high school robotics team from Dimona to develop the Read My Lips mask, which has a clear plastic front. She enlisted the RoboActive No. 2096 team at the Zinman Darka High School in Dimona for help on the project. Right now, the mask costs us 15.5 shekels, or $4.40 to make, the robot team mentor Ma'ayan Levin said, we want to lower the price and especially to make it available to the hearing disabled population at low price, at a, uh, at a cost price, actually. Deputy Director General of Israel's Health Ministry Itamar Grotto has warned that the country should be prepared for a second wave of coronavirus in the summer. As additional restrictions were loosened amid the pandemic, the Jerusalem Post reports. I truly hope that we do not see additional rises, he said during an interview on Army Radio referring to the number of cases. I trust the public. 
I think that it may be trusted to understand what is demanded. Grotto clarified that the country must prepare for the possibility that something will appear in the summer. We are building a number of scenarios, one of which involves staying in the same conditions until the winter. The daily number of coronavirus cases that have surfaced throughout the country has steadily declined throughout the past couple of weeks, with May 1st marking the last time in which over 100 were identified within the same day. And next from the Jewish Week, Orthodox leaders warn, don't open shuls too early. Movements join a wide Jewish consensus that safety prevails over group worship by Steve Lipman. As several states are moving to reopen their economies, even as the number of daily coronavirus cases is still rising, Orthodox Jewish leaders are taking a strong stand on the side of caution. In contrast to reports of some Orthodox Jews in this country and Israel flouting social distancing regulations and following weeks of what some observers considered tepid responses, national organizations and several orth local Orthodox rabbis have issued directives to their members stressing that social distancing and self-isolation are necessary under Jewish law as well as under secular rules and sound public health policy. Among the Orthodox institutions issuing strong public rulings are the Orthodox Union, which issued its guidelines May 8th, Agudath Israel of America, also May 8th, and local rabbinical boards and congregations, which took the same step last week within a few days of each other. The Orthodox leaders have acted, said Rabbi Avi Shafran, a spokesman for Agudath Israel, because of the simple fact that Jews are enjoined by halakha, Jewish law, to guard their health. Some of the statements are in response to reports that some worshippers are holding outdoor or porch services, and other private minions in defiance of previous directives. Last month, Eli Schlesinger, a journalist for Bahadri Haredim news site in Israel, wrote that members of the so-called ultra-Orthodox community were originally reluctant to abide by social distancing guidelines. The Haredic public listens only to their rabbis, he wrote, and the rabbis really didn't know what was happening or how dangerous it was. In order to get the Haredi community to do something, you need to get the rabbis to explain to them, by way of professional experts in a respectful way and very clearly, what the picture is and what the danger is. They didn't do this. A recent sign of this communal attitude towards social distancing, several hundred residents of Jerusalem's Haredi Me'asherim neighborhood crowded the area's narrow streets last Monday night to celebrate the Lagba Omer holiday, ignoring a government ban on celebrations. In the U.S., the new unified Orthodox stance appears to have ended a split between some members of the modern Orthodox and Haredi Orthodox communities over compliance with social distancing regulations. The statement also suggests a divide between Jewish groups, including both Orthodox and non-Orthodox congregations, and the Trump administration, which is encouraging a return to in-person uh, in services as a statement of religious freedom. In a visit last Friday with clergy in Iowa, whose governor is leaving it up to churches to decide when to reopen, Vice President Pence spoke about the importance of resuming in-person religious services and calling the issue a question of religious liberty. In response, Rabbi David Kaufman of the Reformed Temple B'nai Yeshuron in Des Moines told Pence it was still too early to fill the pews. 
It's inadvisable at the moment, especially with rising case counts in the communities in which most of our congregations are across the state, the rabbi told the vice president. Rabbi Kaufman said more testing for the virus or for antibodies, as well as a vaccine, would be needed for a return to totally normal worship. Kaufman's response is in line with guidance from leaders of the conservative reform and reconstructing Judaism movements, and now most major Orthodox leaders as well. Reopening houses of worship was also at the center of a clash between the White House and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The administration shelved the agency's detailed guidelines for the reopening of schools, restaurants, and communities of faith, in part because officials thought the restrictions too burdensome for houses of worship. Evangelical Christians in particular are a key constituency of President Trump. In a webcast briefing last week with Orthodox Union leadership, Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, appeared to echo the CDC's guidelines. He urged a cautious approach and advised Jewish worshipers to phase in communal prayer as local governments lift coronavirus pandemic restrictions. The kind of social interactions, which is the core of the beauty of your culture, has unfortunately led to a higher risk, Dr. Fauci said. If you said for the time being, how about one uh, once a day and five days a week as opposed to three times a day, seven times a week, if you could phase that part in, that would be a good idea. I don't want to be presumptuous to know what that would mean to you from a spiritual sp- uh, standpoint. He also said risk mitigation should be considered for the high holidays in September. As we get to the fall, there will almost certainly be virus, Dr. Fauci said. Everyone is worried about Rosh Hashanah. Rabbi Adam Mintz, founder of Kehillat Rayim Ahuvim, a small modern Orthodox congregation on the Upper West Side, told the Jewish Week in a phone interview. We need to educate our community that Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur will not be like a regular Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. That's going to be very jarring for a lot of people. Rabbi Mintz said every congregation in his neighborhood has closed to comply with the government guidelines. Whether or not to close really hasn't been an issue. When will the synagogues reopen? It's possible that Frummer, Haredi, or fervently Orthodox shuls may open before the modern Orthodox shuls, he said, adding that his congregation, not a member of the Orthodox Union, will look to the OU for direction. The Orthodox Union's guidelines specify a two-week waiting period for resumption of group activities after the local governments have allowed public gatherings of more than 10 persons and have not seen upticks in disease. While the Aguda guidelines call for similar 14-day waiting period, OU synagogues are considered more likely to follow the 14-day guideline, Rabbi Mintz said. The Orthodox Union document, issued in partnership with the Rabbinical Council of America, presents 13 reopening principles that center on the resumption of communal davening, but do not imply that any reopening should be done at this point. The document calls for a gradual process with social distancing in synagogues. It discourages outdoor minyanim and states that people over 65 and other vulnerable people should be at the least highly discouraged from attending communal worship services. A good of Israel's roadmap urges members uh, measures like masks and distancing and states that no communal activity may begin until governmental and rabbinic authorities deem this activity safe and allowable. 
Rabbinic authorities, the document states, have assured us that the same Torah that idolizes Torah and tefillah, prayer, in a large shul with many in attendance under normal circumstances, now requires us to do so in a way that vigorously preserves our health and the health of those around us. I don't know of any opposition among Aguda-affiliated shuls or their members to social distancing. The community is very cautious, Rabbi Shaffron said. The well-publicized funerals that have been attended by crowds represent a tiny part of a small part of the Hasidic community. He noted a recent funeral in Brooklyn that drew an angry reaction from Mayor Bill de Blasio had been uh, coordinated ahead of time with police. The vast majority of funerals in the Haredi world, and tragically, there have been many, were attended only by a few relatives and Hevra Kedisha personnel. In Israel, said Rabbi Yehuda Meshi Zahav, chairman and founder of the country's Zaka Volunteer Emergency Service Organization, it took time for a part of the community to understand the severity of the matter. While there's a few small communities that aren't obeying the community because they think it's a Zionist attack on the Haredim, around 95% of Haredim are obeying and the rabbis said to observe the rules. Local Orthodox leaders in this country are warning their communities to resist the desire to relax safeguards. That time has not yet arrived. The only way to avoid potential spread of the coronavirus is by maintaining strict social distancing and consistently following protocols such as wearing masks in public areas, wrote rabbinical leaders of the strict Orthodox Yeshiva in Passaic, Clifton, New Jersey. Rabbi Heschel Billet, spiritual leader of the Young Israel of Woodmere, Long Island, last week sent a long email message to his congregants about necessary safety precautions. He later clarified that he wrote the letter because there have been many minyanim in the five towns in violation of our community standards. In his letter, widely shared, Rabbi Billet emphasized that the obligation to preserve one's health outweighs the obligation to pray in a minyan or prayer quorum even when a person is saying Kaddish for a family member who has died. Protecting the sanctity of life is the overriding choice of halakha, or Jewish law, he wrote. He declared his message is in accordance with Orthodox Union standards. The mainstream Orthodox community has been responsible all along. The problem is that when people forget to comply with social distancing regulations, it can be a fatal mistake. You can pray even if you don't have a minion. The rabbi who closed his synagogue the week of Purim told the Jewish week. Rabbi Ruvain Fink of the Young Israel of New Rochelle the first synagogue to get hit hard by the virus, forwarded Rabbi Bilet's letter to his own congregants, writing that he strongly agrees with everything in the letter. And next from the Jewish Week, Jerry Stiller was a mensch. He could act with the best of them, too. By Kurt Schleier. The first thing Jerry Stiller said to me when we met was a compliment. Several weeks later, I had interviewed him over the phone for an article tied to an appearance in an HBO miniseries, but Stiller's roots were always in the theater, so despite his successes, it wasn't surprising to find him in the smallish, regional Westport County Playhouse in Connecticut, where I had arranged to meet him. He was starring in Afterplay, a brilliant examination of life at mid-stage, as seen through the eyes of two couples who go out for a post-theater drink. A discussion about the play 
They've just seen leads to talk about various scars that life inflicts, such as parents who are hurtful to children who have gone astray. It was a grueling performance. He was on stage for nearly the entire 90 minutes without intermission and ran the gamut of emotions from joy to anger to unbearable sadness. I was leery now. Given how draining his performance was, I felt that the conversation I'd anticipated would not actually happen. As it turns out, Stiller loved the playwright, literally. She was also his co-star on stage and in real life, Anne Miara. Perhaps that was the reason there was a particular bounce to his step as he greeted well-wishers in a hospitality set, uh, tent set up behind the theater. A jazz guitarist who gave him two CDs, a show business agent, and some people who knew him years ago popped in to say hello. When I introduced myself, he excused himself from those folks. I was trying to figure out which one you were, Stiller said. He couldn't understand how I had managed the article based on our brief phone conversation, and he made it seem as though it was the best thing ever written about him. Typically, celebrities can be your best friend when you help them promote their latest ventures, but after that, they understandably disappear. But Jerry Stiller wasn't typical. For several, for several years after that late 1990s interview in the play, I'd receive high holiday cards from him and Anne, who I met briefly that evening. I had his phone number and email address, and he always made himself available if I needed a quote. In fact, once an editor at a paper, knowing my relationship with Stiller, wanted me to ask him a favor. Someone died and the editor wanted to know if Stiller would write a tribute. He did. In fact, over the many times I asked something of him, the only time he declined was when I wanted to his help arranging an interview with his son, Ben. He wouldn't get involved in that. The last time I saw Stiller was about five years ago. Ben was appearing in a Broadway show, and Dad was there every night to watch and cheer him on. I went over at intermission and reintroduced myself. It took him a few seconds, but he remembered and greeted me enthusiastically. We spoke until the start of the second act. News, uh, news of his death prompted me to return to the stories I'd written about him, and while much of his professional, the Stiller and Miera act, Seinfeld and the King of Queens, and personal life had been covered, I realized that he'd told me some things over the years that I hadn't seen elsewhere. It started on Jerome Street in the largely poor East New York section of Brooklyn, the first of a series of brief stops on the road to adulthood. I remember very distinctly that we moved 11 times in the first 13 years of my life, Stiller recalled. The moves invariably were tied to staying one step ahead of a pursuing landlord. If there was a dark side to my life, it was moving around all those times. It meant you were losing friends every time you move, he added. And when we were kids, we always had to do something to get the, the kids in the new neighborhood to include you in punch ball games and stick ball games. His father was a cab driver, not the best of professions during the Depression. Finally, his father landed a job as a bus driver after his wife and sister-in-law cashed in a small Irish sweepstakes winning ticket enough to pay $500 to someone at the bus company for a job. Stiller caught the acting bug at the Henry Street Settlement, which, at the time, largely served Jewish immigrants living on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. It ignited a spark in me that made me want to become an actor, he said. His first role came in a high school play where he played Hitler. It was a comedy in which the German dictator went to heaven and was reformed. It made me aware for the first time that I love making people laugh. 
And from that point on, I knew that I wanted to become an actor, he said. The theater lifted me up. After school and a stint in the military, Stiller did what all young actors did, made the rounds. At one agent's office, he was introduced to the young woman with an appointment before his, an Irish-American girl named Anne. She came out of the office screaming that the agent had chased her around the room. Gentleman that he was, Stiller invited her for a cup of coffee. She immediately impressed him by sticking some of the silverware in her purse for later use at home. I thought she was kind of interesting, someone with guts like that, Stiller told me. He would marry Anne Miara, who would later convert to Judaism. Stiller told me that she was chiefly responsible for the family's observances of the faith, like getting Ben and his sister Amy off to Hebrew school and making holiday meals. Years later, Stiller actually had to turn down the role of Frank Costanza on Seinfeld when he was first contacted about it. He had just gone into rehearsal for a play in New York, Three Men on a Horse, with Tony Randall and Jack Klugman. Another actor was cast and appeared in one episode, but when that didn't work out, the Seinfeld people contact him again. This time he accepted, fortunately for all of us viewers. Stiller remembered the end of his first show when the cameras stopped rolling and the cast was called out to the audience's applause. That night, when they introduced the actors after the show and he came to me, the audience clapped a little louder. My eyes met Jerry Seinfeld, Stiller said, and we knew that something was in the air. Something special. And next, from the New York Jewish Week, from the editor's desk, Solve the Biology or the Economy Won't Recover. A Cautious Reopening is Not a Conspiracy by the Coastal Elite, by Andrew Silo Carroll. If you find yourself being asked to choose between saving lives and reopening the economy, you're being played for a sucker. The great majority of Americans understand that getting past the COVID-19 crisis depends on a wise combination of medical breakthroughs, public health precautions, economic relief, and sound public policy. According to a Politico Morning Consult poll, 82% of Democrats and 61% of Republicans agree Americans should continue to social distance for as long as it is needed to curb the spread of the coronavirus, even if it means continued damage to the economy. But special interests who want to score political points want you to believe otherwise. Mostly conservative strategists and donors have funded and weaponized small but loud groups of protesters who try to portray Democratic governors as heartless, as heartless big government types who don't care about the working man, or they want to tar Donald Trump's critics as coastal elitists who can hide from the impact of the lockdown while safely working at home. The key to the strategy is the straw man argument that the health officials and policymakers who want to keep a tight lid on the country until COVID-19 is brought under control don't understand the pain and suffering being caused by keeping businesses shut down. That's not what I'm hearing from Democrats like Andrew Cuomo and Michigan's Gretchen Whitmer or Republicans like Ohio's Mike DeWine and Maryland's Larry Hogan. Cuomo often talks with great empathy about the human costs of the lockdown. He counsels a gradual approach to opening precisely because he fears that moving too quickly will sink us into another cycle of illness and death and another death spiral for the economy. I guess I am a coastal elite. I still have a job, I can work from home, and I don't want to rush back to my office and contract the virus that might kill me. 
but I also want other people to get back to work. To that end, I am open to, no, desperate for, a strategy that will return us to a semblance of normal. I think about my local supermarket. It's been seven weeks since people began shopping there under tight restrictions. Social distancing, masks, limit on the number of people who can shop at any one time. I haven't heard of any hot spots or outbreaks associated with grocery shopping. That suggests, to me at least, that we can begin to open other businesses and venues deploying similar restrictions. My hunch is confirmed by a useful paper by Aaron S. Bromage, an associate professor of biology at the University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth. His analysis of the emerging science on the spread of COVID-19 concludes that you're at the highest risk when you are sharing close indoor spaces for an extended period of time with people who might be expelling the virus. You're at much less risk outdoors or in a grocery store or similarly large space where most people don't spend too long a time. That bodes well for hiking in the woods and working in larger, well-ventilated spaces and not so much for, say, riding a crowded bus or attending a synagogue on Rosh Hashanah. When figuring out how and when to open, I want politicians to consult people like Bromage, not a pundit or a political strategist. The second politicized argument for opening makes the awful analogy that this is a war. According to this line of thinking, every death to COVID-19 is a battlefield casualty of the kind that we have long tolerated to guarantee liberty and the future of our country. The problems with this analogy are many, but consider this. We know which cohorts are particularly vulnerable to COVID-19, including the elderly, meatpacking and factory workers, and African Americans. They didn't enlist in this war, nor were they drafted, but they are being asked to bear the disproportionate amount of the pain and sacrifice. It's the immoral general who fights a war having decided which troops are expendable according to their age, race, or workplace. The third specious argument of the reopened crowd says that opening houses of worship is a matter of religious liberty. Well, yes, but wise clergy understand that church and state can work together if it is a matter of preserving life. Happily, most Jewish organizations have come around to this realization. As Rabbi David Kaufman of Des Moines, Iowa told Vice President Pence on Friday, we are uniformly in a position that it is too early to return to in-person worship. It's inadvisable at the moment, especially with rising case counts. Those calling for cautious reopening aren't ignoring the economic casualties of the shutdown. Instead, they are urging generous government support in the form of unemployment insurance, payroll protections, and small business loans to ease the pain and lessen the sacrifice. Of course, that is exactly the approach that one side in this debate, the one with a lot invested in discrediting the utility of government, fears the most. But like I said, to get dragged into these kinds of polarizing arguments is a fool's game. The great majority of Americans understand that, as Bromage puts it, if you don't solve the biology, the economy won't recover. Provocateurs want you to take sides, but what we need to do is to take care. And next from JTA, 2019 saw most anti-Semitic incidents in 40 years, ADL says, New York and New Jersey hit hardest in unprecedented year by Ben Sales. 
Last year saw the most anti-Semitic incidents in the United States since at least 1979, according to the Anti-Defamation League. The 2,107 events recorded in 2019 reflect a 12% increase from 2018 and are more than double the 942 incidents recorded just four years earlier, in 2015. It's the highest number recorded by the ADL since it began tallying incidents in 1979. Aside from a small dip in total incidents in 2018, the ADL's annual statistics show that anti-Semitism in the United States has been on a steady climb for much of the past decade. Last year saw a number of high-profile anti-Semitic incidents. In April, a gunman killed one person and wounded three in a synagogue shooting in Poway, California. In December, two shooters killed four people, including Jews, two Jews, in an attack that ended at a Jersey City kosher supermarket. Eighteen days later, an attacker killed one person and wounded four in a stabbing at a Hanukkah party in Muncie, New York. The year also saw a stream of anti-Semitic incidents in Brooklyn, mostly targeting Orthodox Jews. Earlier in the year, and in a different arena, Minnesota Representative Ilhan Omar made comments widely condemned as anti-Semitic. This was a year of unprecedented anti-Semitic activity, a time when many Jewish communities across the country had direct encounters with hate, Jonathan Greenblatt, the ADL CEO, said in a statement accompanying the report. This contributed to a rising climate of anxiety and fear in our communities. A recently released study by the ADL found that the majority of American Jews have witnessed or experienced anti-Semitism in the past five years. Nearly two-thirds said they're safe, uh, they're less safe than they were a decade ago. The ADL's annual report on anti-Semitic incidents is compiled using data reported to the organization and then evaluated by its Center on Extremism. The data came from people affected, community leaders, and law enforcement. As the report covers 2019, it does not refer to the shift in how anti-Semitism has manifested during the coronavirus pandemic. Long-lasting stay-at-home orders could drive the number of anti-Semitic encounters down, but the ADL and others who monitor anti-Semitism say the pandemic could contribute to new forms of hate, especially online. Last year saw a rise in anti-Semitic physical assaults from 61 to 39, as well as a 19% increase in acts of anti-Semitic vandalism and a 6% increase in anti-Semitic harassment. The 1,127 incidents of harassment made up more than half of the total numbers of incidents in the report, which also tallied 919 incidents of anti-Semitic vandalism, including 746 involving a swastika. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss at the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you very much for listening.